Welcome to COPcast from Climate Home News. I'm Carl Matheson, editor at Climate Home News and one of the hosts of this podcast. We're on day five of the COP here in Katowice, Poland. But before we jump into today's news, I wanted to thank our supporter, Stockholm Environment Institute. As reporters in the climate space, good data is really difficult to come across, uh, but the Stockholm Environment Institute are always really reliable and available to us, and so we're really grateful to them uh, for helping us understand the stories that we write more deeply. Uh, to gather compelling evidence on climate action, go to sei.org. Megan Darby, edit- Deputy Editor of Climate Home News, is here with me. Hi, Megan. Hi, Carl. How's it going today? Yeah, so um, text has been coming in in dribs and drabs yesterday and today on the different bits of the rule book. Uh, some are progressing more than others. Um, there's you know various technical and political issues um, that are going to come to the fore in the next couple of days. But it, you just kind of have to wait and see how people react um, and whether there's kind of consensus on, on the way things are going. Outside the talks, uh, we saw Donald Trump winding up Emmanuel Macron about the protests that were going on in Paris and thanking him for backing his attitude towards the Paris Agreement and saying that it was fatally flawed. There's been some response to that that's kind of put him in his box. What's happened? Yeah, well, uh, I don't know about put him in his box. He's pretty hard to contain. But um, Laurence Tubiano, one of the uh, architects of the Paris Agreement and the head of the European Climate Foundation, um, leapt to its defence, uh, tweeting that um, the, the yellow vest protests in France are not against climate action. They are a wake-up call for social justice. And there's also been a press conference here um, where uh, Pierre Canet of, of WWF France said, you know, ultimately, Ultimately, um, there needs to be an increased price on carbon, but there needs to be a conversation with people uh, to get it to get it right and to bring people along uh, and make sure that this is, you know, what it, whatever kind of carbon pricing there is, is seen as fair. Yeah, putting him in his box might have been an exaggeration. <laughs> Speaking of the US, um, I had a really fascinating and uh, touching conversation uh, while we were here at the COP with uh, Kathy Eglund, who works for the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, um, kind of more commonly known as the NAACP. And um, she was just such a fascinating interviewee. Uh, she grew up under segregation in Mississippi and has kind of lived through the civil rights movement and is now here talking to people about climate change and the kind of civil rights and civil justice aspects of it and reaching out to the global south. So, um, yeah, let's have a listen to her. Uh, my name is Catherine Eglin. Everyone calls me Kathy. Uh, I am from Gulfport, Mississippi in the USA. Uh, and I am a member of the NAACP National Board of Directors. It is the oldest and largest civil rights organization in the world. Um, I chair the Environmental Climate Justice, the National Environmental and Climate Justice Committee for the National Board. Uh, but I also uh, live uh, living in Gulfport, Mississippi. I live in walking distance, just less than four blocks from the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and so that's a frontline community. We're disproportionately impacted by uh, climate events um, and uh, also, too, by environmental events such as the BP oil spill. I was able to walk 
just a few blocks from my home and I was looking at all of that sludge. So um, the stakes uh, are very high for me because of the area and the vulnerability uh, just by the geographic area where I live. Can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up and, and, the, and the place, Golftown, Mississippi? Did you grow up there? Yes, I did grow up in Mississippi, and um, it was um, doing, um, I was born while it was uh, legally, uh, segregation was legal, and so I grew up um, knowing people like Dr. Martin Luther King, who would come, who was very influential in my life. Um, He would come to our state, and um, I marched alongside of him as a child and was very involved in the civil rights movement. Um, So, and was able to see the transition uh, from um, segregation to post-segregation era in Mississippi. When did you start becoming conscious of the vulnerability of the place that you grew up in? Um, actually, I, I have a sister who's an environmental scientist, and so I've always had um, a certain amount of consciousness. Um, however, and then I always thought, well, I was doing my part. I was making a contribution. I was recycling, and I was environmentally conscious. And it wasn't until Hurricane Katrina uh, that I realized that I needed action, I needed to do more, that what I was doing was really nothing compared to what needed to be done. Um, I actually was able to see uh, the disparities um, in a disaster. It was something that I actually lived and I witnessed it firsthand. So it was, in two words, Hurricane Katrina was really a huge wake-up call for me. I practically lost my home. I saw homes of my friends lost, but the greatest loss was two of my dearest friends who drowned. Um, they lived near the beachfront, and when the waters, uh, the, the waters when came from Hurricane Katrina rushed into their home, they climbed into their attic, and that wasn't enough to save them. The water came into their attic, and they drowned. I've never lived through a, any kind of um, environmental catastrophe like that or, f- I, I guess, experienced that sense. Of, I, I, I don't know. I imagine that you just suddenly become aware of vulnerability and how small and fragile your life is at that moment. What, what was it like having that, you know, having the storm coming towards you and knowing what was happening? Or like, can you talk to me about that? Um, it was a living nightmare. Um, we actually evacuated um, because they did have mandatory evacuation. So we were able to evacuate. Fortunately, we had the means to evacuate. A lot of people without means were not so fortunate. And so a lot of people had to be relico- uh, rescued by helicopter from their rooftops. And um, it was really painful. Uh, We saw the failures of our government uh, during Hurricane Katrina to assist those who were most vulnerable. And those of us who, uh, there were people without water, without food, without transportation. And so we basically helped each other. Um, And it was really um, something to see how the community just came together in face of the failure of our government. Uh, we came together to assist each other because it took a while before government assistance came to our area. 
but it was devastating when I was driving back uh, from we evacuated to Mobile, Alabama, which is a neighboring state. And when I got back, landmarks, homes uh, were just gone. Uh, places where I used to walk by on the beachfront, everything on the beachfront was completely destroyed. It looked as if homes had never been there. You saw sometimes just steps in a foundation where a home used to be. And that was, I mean, it, it was devastating. You were obviously involved in the civil rights movement before that. Did that sort of, I, I guess it was, it was, it was a, a moment of reckoning for America along the lines of race, but also environmentally and, and for you personally, was that, that the moment where those two things kind of coalesced? Definitely, definitely. I, I always say that I actually, during, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, it was like reliving Jim Crow. It was the Jim Crow of climate change for me. And I was actually able to see the disparities. It's strange because I always, you know, believed in climate change and I knew these disasters were coming and they were going to hit somewhere, someday. I never thought it was going to be in my own backyard. So when that happened, uh, it was a tremendous wake-up call. And I, I saw the disparities. I saw the aids uh, that were not getting to people who lacked um, access to transportation. I saw the aid not getting to food. I saw the disparities in people not having the ability to prepare or to recover. So climate change affects us all, but we don't have equal abilities to prepare and recover from, from the disasters. And since, that, since then, you've been on a journey that's now led you to these climate talks in Katowice. Um, I was looking at some of the things that you've been doing, contacting some other communities, vulnerable communities around the world. What's, what, what, are you, what are you trying to do while you're here? In, in working with uh, CAN, our Climate Action Network International, um, they are one of the partners, many partners of the NAACP in environmental and climate change. Um, we also have an MOU with the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance. Uh, so my first COP was in Warsaw, and it was uh, right after Typhoon Haiyan. And that was the realization of this connection, whether it was Hurricane Katrina or whether it was Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines, we were all connected, you know, by the perils of climate change. And I walked up to, we had on Women's Day in Warsaw, uh, we had a candlelight vigil, and I walked up to one of the ladies from the Philippine delegation and told her who I was and where I'm from, and that they would recover because we were recovering from Hurricane Katrina. And she just fell into my arms and we embraced because that connection was there and it was so strong. So I realized that whether it's in my local community or whether it's in the Philippines or whether it's in Bangladesh, we're all connected in this struggle together. There's a, I guess there's a trope or a, a cliche about environmentalists in developed countries that they're kind of privileged, generally white. Uh, you know, it's kind of, it, it's a luxury to be an environmentalist. 
um, is that your is that your experience when you're out there talking to your community? Um, I, personally, for me, and I always tell people, I'm not easily intimidated. Um, I grew up with the KKK in Mississippi during the Civil Rights Movement during segregation so uh, nothing really intimidates me but I do know a lot of people who feel that it is elitist um, and, and it, it really is in some ways very it very much is I didn't understand a lot of the terminology just like other people uh, I had to do a lot of study and I had to do a lot of reading the acronyms drove me crazy uh, but however I am a retired educator and I would, you know, always, I'm constantly reading and keeping myself up to date. So it is very difficult. It is an area that have been, where people of color have been excluded. You know, um, it, is, it has been in a space for the privilege. So what's it like talking to people in your, in your local community who are, you know, from a vulnerable uh, area continues you know is this just another issue or are they are you finding that your kind of conversations with them like cut through yes um they are initially and i'm always posting stuff on facebook on social media and trying to raise the consciousness because people have they really feel excluded and a lot of people feel intimidated because it's not an area um that a space where they have been welcome, where, where the, the welcome mat hasn't always been out, and that's what they felt. One of the things when I got involved, uh, the NAACP issued a report called the Cold-Blooded Report, and where it analyzed 384 coal-fired plants across the nation. One of those plants was literally in my backyard. It was less than four miles from my home. Um, so we started a campaign, an educational campaign for the community to let them know that, you know, um, the health impacts and everything that was impacted, the climate change impacts of that uh, coal-fired plant. And when we started that, the energy company that owned the plant asked to uh, meet with us, and we agreed to meet with them. And the first thing that they tried to do was play divide and conquer. And they told us, we hope you're not listening to that Sierra Club because they're just a bunch of rich white people and they don't care about anything but the, the trees uh, and the birds. And I was highly insulted <laughs> because they were trying to, and they still do, they still play this, the, the race card, and they still, they're, they're t and they will even take some of the uh, traditional strategies used by the civil rights movement to try to divide and conquer us. And so it's too important, it's very important not to allow that to happen. And so I aptly put them in their place uh, for trying that with me <laughs> because it's just not going to happen. And so um, we continue to be a voice for inclusion. And I, I have seen just in the past 10 years, I have seen tremendous progress. And I think we're going to continue to see progress. But there are still people who don't know, they don't have the understanding, they don't understand the terminology. And when we do uh, town hall meetings, um, when we first started on our first campaign, 
people came to me and they said, we're not coming back to anymore because people are talking over our heads. We don't understand what they're talking about. And that was a, another wake up call for me that we had to start from scratch. You can't just simply uh, assume that people understand what a fossil fuel is or what greenhouse gas, because we found out they did not. And so now when we have trainings, we always have what we call Climate 101, and we tell people if you don't understand any of this, if you don't know what a CO2 emission is, if you don't understand net metering, stay in this room and you will understand it. So lots of time, half, at least sometimes half or more than half will stay in the room. And once they get the general basics, and then they're ready to go and they thirst for more, and we found out that has been a tremendous advantage really want to thank Kathy Eglin for sharing with us today um, and that's it for this Copcast. Thank you to Megan Darby and our producer Soila Aparicio. Don't forget to follow us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Uh, Climate Home News is on Twitter and Facebook and you can subscribe to our newsletter by going to www.climatechangenews.com. See you tomorrow.